News of the Jews. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. I actually have to say, Tablet has a new deputy editor named Jeremy Stern. I need to figure out what my title is now because as of like, I think November 1, he officially took over. So we will figure out what my title Wait, is. does that bump you? We can't have two deputy editors? I think I'm, I've been undeputized. Yeah, I'm happy to give it to him. I just need to make up a new title. I don't even myself. know what, what am I now? Am I... Am I a senior editor? <laughs> you, you luck out because you host the show, so we don't have to know what your title no is. No one will ever know. <laughs> I, I would say this. If you have a job with a defined title that you actually understand what you do, you're doing it wrong. You should never understand, and no one else should either, what it is that you do. Speaking of which, we have... And tablet editor at large. <laughs> Leo, the most meaningless of all do, titles. Do you Leo see Leibowitz. what I'm talking we about? We haven't found Shalom. him yet. He is still at large. He's at large. There was all these jokes about how that title was invented in the magazine industry to say, editor without pay or benefits. <laughs> editor without <laughs> editor without an office. It was just, we'll keep you on the masthead, but you get nothing else. I advocated else. for nothing editor on the lamb because I always wanted to be on the lamb. <laughs> Two Jews this week. One of them is NBC anchor Katie Tour, who joins us to talk about her memoir, Rough Draft. And the other is writer Douglas Century. You know he's Jewish because of his seriously Ashkenazi Jew last name Century. He talks about his new book, The Last Boss of Brighton, which tells the story of the rise of the Russian mob, which has a lot of Jews in it. And if you want to talk about tough Jews, Russian mob Jews, thems are some tough Jews. We're back from uh, last time we did the show. It was era of Thanksgiving. It is now post-Thanksgiving. It's like Shmini Yacht's Thanksgiving, you know, the day after the day after. Did people have a good time? Stephanie, Liel? Was yeah, it? I, I got to tell you, I, I, I found it really weird because, look, I love celebrating Rosh Chodesh as much as the next guy. But this past Thursday, <laughs> Rosh Chodesh who, Kislev, who among us, you know, who among us doesn't like it when they throw in an extra halal just when you think you're out the door of correct. synagogue? They say, oh, it's the, it's the new month. You got an extra 20 minutes in your morning. So, so all of a sudden, it's 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 Rosh Chodesh Kislev and uh, I'm preparing, you know, to celebrate as I always do. And, and then all around me, people are posting really thoughtful <laughs> pictures of things they did for Rosh Chodesh Kislev. A lot of people made turkeys. People <laughs> did, you know, yams. As with, is traditional. It's really, I mean, people went all out for Kislev this year. That's the spirit I like. Stephanie, so Liel had a good, a good Rosh Chodesh Kislev. Did you celebrate Rosh Chodesh Kislev or any other holiday with your family? I did. So as listeners know, I spent Thanksgiving with the Butniks, Black Friday with the Coens, and we took Edith to the mall. That girl loves the mall. And okay, sometimes this thing happens where it like is revealed that I like grew up in Great Neck where most everyone was Jewish. And I like, I come from an alien planet where I think I'm the like the super majority ethnically. Experience you're not giving to your treasured daughter who's going to grow up, in, you know. <laughs> On the Upper West Side. Upper West Side, where yeah. almost <laughs> no one is Jewish. Yeah, so we went to the mall on Black Friday. So, you know, this happened in college when I would say like, oh wait, which day is Christmas again? And they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, it's what day is it? And still I'm kind of like, it's the 25th, right? Like I didn't realize it never moved. I have a lot of things like I have like a real Christmas blind spot, a credit to my parents, like an amazing upbringing where like I thought everyone was Jewish and Christmas was like a very niche holiday celebrated by some people in other towns. Celebrated by Jews who like writing Christmas music. It's very easy. Yes, exactly. Who made this American holiday for you? But so we're at the mall and I see this enormously long line of like plaid attired well-dressed children and I realized that they're going to have their photo taken with the mall Santa 
And I've never really like witnessed this phenomena. And this is kind of embarrassing because before we got on the Zoom, I said what I'm about to say and I got the response that I'm probably about to get, which is like, did you know they have like a real photographer there taking photos of the very like fancily dressed children on Santa's lap? It's true that when we were pre-Zooming for this Zoom, that you were slagged for your ignorance. (laughs) So I actually have to say, growing up where I did, a very Christian area, my local malls, there actually wasn't a photographer. There was a Santa in Santa's court. And if you were of the Gentile persuasion or, you know, a Jewish kid who nagged your parents. Is is it like the people's Yeah, there were little, I think there might've been elves around. I don't know, but- Judge Judy was definitely there. (laughs) But but noted Gentile Judge Judy (laughs) Scheinlin was definitely there. And- you you got up on Santa's lap, which I think my mother always hurried us. And you, I think you had to pay a dollar or five dollars or something. And I think my mother always hurried us along. Like what? It, I think my mother figured there was some, you know, that those Santas were not to be trusted with little children on their lap. I don't know. There was there was some paranoia about. It was like Scoutmaster, Gentile wasn't it also clergy. That you were Jewish. I don't think my no mother was. Reason. A, well, we knew who Santa was. I mean, I think my parents weren't against us going over to neighbors' houses to trim the trees. But I will say there was actually not. I am 99% certain, and my friends from the 413 can can back me up or not or correct me. There was no fancy schmancy photographer there. Parents whipped out their little 35 millimeters with Kodachrome in them and snapped a picture of the kid bouncing on, being dandled on Santa's knee. I actually think it is not the case that you missed the boat growing up. I think that it's a fairly recent innovation that there would be fancy schmancy photographers selling pictures. It was, it was pictures. like picture day. There was like the lighting things. Short Hills Mall is where it's at. And there was an incredibly long By line. the way, that's probably because the Santa is also the, the gabai of Congregation <laughs> Avat Israel. The photographer is the Kiddush Club president. And it's just a huge fundraiser for the show. I was going to say, isn't Short Hills Mall the Jew- most <laughs> Jewish yes. mall? You know that, Santa. <laughs> that's how you know Jew. that's the place to go. By the way, on his off break, he turns around and be like, excuse me, are you Jewish? Can, can you put the fill in <laughs> Okay, here's, here's my next, the next piece is that like Santa was down on the main floor. And then on the second floor where I was watching- um, Hanukkah Harry. <laughs> no, it was literally two Chabad guys putting- to fill in on, on a guy outside of Abercrombie. And I was like, what's going on right now? Like, I, I'm going to go out on the limb here. I'm going to ask producer Quinn Waller while we're recording to kindly Google Santa to fill in. I bet you that there was some mall in America with the exact same setting in which the Chabad guys went to Santa. And went to Santa on Santa's break. They said to Santa, are you Jewish? Santa is and Harry Rosenberg Santa to put I, on to fill in. Quinn, think about this. can you please find us this photo? So here's the thing. Santa is a jolly man with a long white beard. He's tremendous wisdom. a Hasidic Jew yeah. and like a funny hat. Like, are there, is there a big business? <laughs> He's of, a guy like, also who emerges from behind his stender once a year to interact with people, but otherwise is in seclusion. Oh, by the way, it took Quinn literally 96 <laughs> seconds to find the exact photo of Chabad putting to fill in on Santa. So it's like, if you were on the ground floor, you were sitting on Santa's lap. If you were on the top floor, you were getting like cornered by Chabad asking if you were Jewish. It was amazing. It was an America, like a chef's kiss America moment. And a freiliche schwarze Freitag to, to all who observe. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J, news of the Jews. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. We have two unimportant stories and one very important story. Unimportant story number one comes to us from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Bagels at the World Cup. 
Qatar may have caused an uproar by banning alcohol at the World Cup. But for religious Jewish fans, some kosher offerings will be available. Apparently, there is a kosher catering program that, according to the JTA, does not involve five-course meals or fine dining, but does allow for kosher bagels to be baked in a catering space provided by Qatar Airways and delivered to those who need them during the World Cup. (laughs) I am going to go out on a limb and say, I bet these bagels are not very good. (laughs) And I also pity the from fans who showed up only to discover that they would be eating an all bagel diet for a month. I mean, it's amazing. Like the lasting impact of the Abraham Accords is that now all Middle Eastern countries have bagels. <laughs> Montreal. Sorry. Do they have UAE bagels? Do they? Now, oh, U, UAE bagels are traditionally smaller and sweeter. That's a whole controversy. <laughs> Nobody likes those. This is such a great way to mess with the Jews. Like you could bring the bagels, but you could bring whatever flavor you want to be like, oh, you ordered the bagel. I'm sorry. We only have rainbow and poppy. We have cranberry bagels. And also the only way to toast them is just to leave them outside. Right. They're all scooped. <laughs> That'll toast They're all scooped out. That's, scooped that's out. your punishment. News of the almost Jews this week. Michelle Williams, who has starred in many fine Hollywood movies, but most recently has a role in The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's latest movie. It turns out that Michelle Williams, who in the movie plays Spielberg's character's mother, has a, quote, Jewish family of her own, according to the article we read. She told the Wall Street Journal that she and her Jewish husband, director Thomas Kale, are raising their two young children with Judaism and that she is studying the religion herself. So here's what I love, right, is that the article then goes on to say that she and her husband have, quote, picked out a synagogue for their family and also that she has positive memories of Jewish traditions from her Jewish childhood friends. God bless the ubiquitous Jewish childhood friends who give Gentiles everywhere positive, warm memories of Shabbos dinners and holidays at the Jewish homes. What's funny is I didn't have any of these memories, but apparently every Gentile celebrity <laughs> in the land was in warm like, Shabbos why, dinners why Friday night. Why did my Jewish family give me positive <laughs> childhood memories of Jewish experiences? <laughs> my Jewish family just taking you to Santa. <laughs> That's right. Santa at Fredley's. She got like warm, you know, Hamish Yiddishkeit from her Jewish friends. But I'm really intrigued that she and her husband have picked out an unnamed synagogue for their family. And I would like to know, I'd like to crowdsource this. I mean, this. they're in Brooklyn, right? Has anyone seen Michelle Williams turn up at their shul for any reason whatsoever? Like she's playing coy with us. We're not going to allow it. We want to know. Come on, friends, New York friends, Brooklyn friends, write to us on orthodoxatabletmag.com. Tell us which shul have Michelle Williams and her husband, Thomas Kale, picked out. Does that mean they've joined it? Have they been or have they just walked by it and said, that's our synagogue, which is to say their relationship to it is that of most Jews to their synagogue. And nothing could be more welcoming than saying, do you actually really go to shul? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Nothing could be more embracing and warm. Welcoming Jews is 50... 57, what are we? 5776. Yeah. But remember, we told you there was an important article this week. I would like to invite one of my colleagues to read from The Guardian's story, headlined, Prosecutors Seek Conviction of Ex-Nazi Camp Secretary, Age 97. Well, allow me. From The Guardian. A 96-year-old former secretary at a Nazi concentration camp has gone on trial in Germany for alleged complicity and the murder of more than 11,000 people in prison there, three weeks after she attempted to flee the proceedings in what must have been the world's slowest walker chase. <laughs> now, here's my favorite part. Irmgard Fuchner was pushed into the court in Itzehoe, northern Germany, strapped into a blue ambulance wheelchair and clutching a brown cloth bag. A silk pattern scarf, sunglasses, and a medical mask cover 
her face. Now, I'm sorry. I'm gonna I'm gonna pause there for a moment. If if you're if you're if you're given Christian name is Irmgard Fuchner, you know from the time you're like three, you're going to be a concentration camp guard. Like before there were Nazis, Irmgard Fuchner was like, what do you want to be when you grow up, sweetie? I don't know, like either a chef or a Nazi guard. Had no other career path. My favorite thing about this story is they're like, she says she has no idea what she was doing. And the biggest thing of evidence against her is that they say the defendant would have been able to see large parts of the camp from her office, including the area where the prisoners arrived. She must also have been able to see and smell smoke from the burning of bodies of the crematorium. They're like, your office was literally right there. Like, like, like sorry, bitch. Like, you were there. Did you notice how many Jews came in and how few left? Did you ever put two and two together and come up with six million. Okay, but here's the kind of, this isn't funny, but it's a little funny. She's being tried in juvenile court. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Due to her age when the alleged crimes were committed because she was 18 when she started working at Stutthof camp. And apparently that made you a juvenile in Germany at the time. She's a thousand years old now. It's like, it's like that horror movie, Esther, where it's like, (laughs) it's like, I'm 17. Orphan three. German prisons are already well known for their, um, shall we say, country club-like atmosphere where, you know, you get Rolfed uh, twice a week and- By Rolf. By (laughs) by Rolf. And you get let out for, you know, conjugal visits. And I mean, the Northern Europeans do prison right, as I like to think of it. How- not tough. Do you think they're juvenile prisons? Also, I'm sorry. Like, the juvenile where, prison she gets sent to may be a better place than the retirement home she's otherwise say, in. Where is Irmgard right now? She's probably in some <laughs> horrible prison-like facility. That bitch should be like, sure, prison, guilty of killing all the Jews. Just put me somewhere better than this death trap. <laughs> uh, the company would be nicer. Like, she should be suing them to go to prison. <laughs> But, but but how is the view? Although, you know what the terrible thing is? You know what they would serve her exclusively in prison? Bagels from the World Cup. <laughs> I mean, do you think that even in Germany, old folks' homes are just kind of on principle mostly Jewish? The way in America, most old people, you know, Jews are disproportionately represented among old people. No. Do you what think do you, that actually this is a way to get away from the Jews that her, that her retirement home is like so many Jews and such small no, portions? No, it's like the Robin Williams I mean, joke. there are no old Jews in Germany for, you know, obvious reasons. <laughs> right. There's no old Jews. There's also no funny people in Germany. No, funny people. no country for old Jews. And I was once on a German talk show, and if you, if you want to go on one, it's a lot of fun. It's really fun. And I was on this German talk show, and this woman said to me, she said, Mr. Williams, why do you think there's not so much comedy in Germany? And I said, did you ever think you killed all the funny people? Katie Tur is an anchor for NBC News. She hosts Katie Tour Reports on weekdays on MSNBC, and she joined Stephanie to talk about her memoir, Rough Draft, her experience covering the Trump campaign, and what it was like growing up with parents who brought new meaning to the phrase helicopter parent. Katie Tur, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. The thing that I think about you is that you sort of bridge generations really, really well. Like, my MSNBC mom is obsessed with you. (laughs) 
But like, so am I. And like, I feel like there's not that much these days in culture that like unites different generations. Is that something you you hear a lot? You know, I don't hear it a lot. I love it because I want to find a way to talk to my friends. My friends don't watch cable news at all. And I mean, to the point where I was covering the insurrection live last year, literally live on television as people are storming the Capitol steps and like democracy might fall. And my best friend in the world texts me, what do you think about these pillows? <laughs> and I said, Jessica, get in front of a television. The world might be ending. What are you doing texting me about pillows? And so I love that idea that I, that I might be able to talk to multi-generations because I, I do get a lot of MSNBC moms whom I love, but I'm finding lately I am getting a, a certain level of younger folks out there who are watching, which makes me feel happy. Like I have a future and um, I can pay my mortgage and clothe my children. <laughs> you have a future and we have a future collectively, right? Because news is important to, maybe important to the younger generation. I don't I'm know. not promising that, but um, yes, <laughs> hopefully we all still have a future. So your Wikipedia page has one of my favorite Wikipedia page euphemisms, which is she is of Jewish descent. Oh. Which is the weirdest thing. We talk about a lot on this podcast. Like they don't say she's Jewish. Like how do you identify? So I don't identify as anything really. I I identify as open to everything and skeptical of everything at the same time. But my dad comes from Jewish stock, you could say. My dad's dad was Jewish. His mom really loved the idea of being Jewish and wanted to be Jewish and took on speaking Yiddish and making matzo ball soup. And she loved the culture of it. So he grew up sort of feeling culturally more Jewish, even though his mother was not. And then we had a degree of that as well, because my grandmother, again, was so into it. So we went to temple like a couple times a year, maybe. We lit the candles for Hanukkah. We made latkes. But that was about the extent of it. I didn't get bat mitzvahed. All of my friends growing up did. So I was very jealous because they had these big blowout parties that rivaled weddings. And, you know, you get those spray painted caricatures on T-shirts and it all just seemed very cool. So I grew up alongside it. I grew up feeling somewhat close to it, but not defined by it because it, it didn't consume much of our lives. As sort of an on-air figure, do you ever experience, like, are people like, do they identify you in a negative way as Jewish? Occasionally I'll get some of those ugly Twitter nasty grams, but not too often. I mean, I'll get like the basic, oh, the media is run by Jews and you're a Jew and you're controlling the world and you're evil and George Soros is your puppet master. You know, the stock level insult from the Twitter bots or trolls, whichever they are. It is interesting though that, you know, my Wikipedia page says it. So I assumed I'd I'd get quite a bit more. My Wikipedia page also says I'm 6'3". Wait, does it? Yeah, I think so. I'm 5'3", but I've kept it because I love it. That's amazing. Maybe it's been changed, but I I love the idea of being 6'3". That's incredible and completely fact-checked for sure. (laughs) But, you know, the other interesting thing generationally is that your new book, Rough Draft, a memoir, is a lot about your parents who really, really played this pivotal role in the culture sort of to a previous generation. So will you tell us a little bit about your parents? So I think if you're 40 or older now, you might have an idea of who they are. Or, Or you at least, if I tell you what they did, you'd say, oh, I remember that moment. They were news journalists in the helicopter in Los Angeles in the 80s and 90s, and they popularized the live police pursuit. So any car chase you saw on camera in the 90s, my parents shot who was in Los Angeles. 
they found OJ in the slow speed pursuit. You probably remember what that image looks like. They captured the Reginald Denny beating during the LA riots, the guy that got pulled out of the red gravel truck with bricks thrown at his head. Um, they got Madonna on her clifftop wedding to Sean Penn, and Madonna gives my dad the middle finger. So yeah, a lot of stuff that is very recognizable, they were responsible for in the 80s and 90s. And could you tell us a little bit about your new memoir? So my new memoir, it came from a place of me finding myself kind of at the bottom of a dark hole in the pandemic where I felt the world was really scary. I thought that we had these big intractable problems. The pandemic was one of them. Politics was another. We suddenly, I mean, we weren't just disagreeing on who to put in the White House. Now we were disagreeing on on a life and death issue, whether the pandemic was even real, you know, climate change. I had a kid, I was pregnant with another kid. And I started to think, what am I doing with my life? Is my job as a cable news host making things better or making things worse? Do I even like doing what I'm doing? Is this what I was supposed to be doing? Or did I just follow in my parents' footsteps? And in the middle of all that soul searching, spinning, spiraling, you might say, um, my mom sent me a hard drive and the hard drive was the size of a small microwave. And on this hard drive contained every piece of videotape my parents ever shot in their career. So it's thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of news footage. But alongside those stories, there was every home video they shot because my dad and my mom would always train the camera on us when they weren't doing journalism. So like me taking my first steps, me watching Billy Idol on MTV and loving it and dancing along, me doing a kitty report interviewing my brother in like a little plastic car, me graduating from college, me graduating from high school, me shooting a big gun at a gun range, like all the stuff of my childhood and the way I grew up was on this hard drive. And so I was excited to get it, but I was also really apprehensive because alongside of all, all the fun stuff, was also a lot of the dark stuff because my dad was was a genius and he was fun and really loving and caring, but also very volatile and very angry and could be very violent. And I knew a lot of that was captured on that hard drive as well. And I had been running away from it forever. And this was me realizing that in order to figure out those big problems in my own life, where am I going and what am I doing? I had to go back into the past and figure out where I came from. And the book was born out of that. And I go back and I document their history, which is, I mean, the New York Times called it a hell of a story. I think that's an understatement. It's absolutely bonkers what my mom and dad did to get into journalism. And then what they did when they were journalists, stuff that I could never approximate. My dad, you know, stared down the barrel of a gun and just kept walking because he needed to go get a story. Um, He was gambling with his life very early on. So it documents all that, but then it also goes through my own life and journalism and where we've come and how my parents kind of broke journalism. And it's it's just a big, fun, quirky, kind of sad and scary mix of life experiences that brought me here. I love the book. I listened to you reading it, which I really, I really enjoyed on Audible. And it's interesting because, you know, I sort of had known a little bit about your parents and obviously, you know, OJ, like I understand what that was, but but hearing it, especially read by you is really, really fascinating, especially in the context of 2016, which is sort of when the world comes to know you, right? Like, do you become part of the national conversation on the Trump campaign where you're sort of like antagonized regularly by Donald Trump, who would then become president. Do those moments stick out to you, like this idea that we were on the precipice of something different in terms of journalism, in terms of technology, like the same inflection point? There's two things to this, which is 
Donald Trump, the way we covered him in 2016 and 2015, putting those rallies on air and not editing them, doing a live without context, let him say whatever he's going to say, and we'll wrap it up afterwards. We'll figure it out afterwards. Just do it, put it on the air now. That sort of coverage was created by my parents. So the live police chases that they covered in the late 80s and 90s, well, the 90s, that didn't happen before they started doing it. And they, the first one that was covered live was a red cabriolet, and it was a guy who murdered someone, stole his car, and led the Los Angeles uh, Police Department on a high-speed chase up and down Los Angeles. And my parents had it live, and the news director of the station they worked for decided to cut into regular programming. It's the middle of the day. That doesn't happen. You don't cut into regular programming unless it's a big deal special report, unless a president gets shot. But they decide to cut in for this police chase. The next day when the ratings came out, that police chase beat the rerun of Matlock that had been airing. And it showed these station managers that this live coverage of a police chase was captivating. It was a marriage of technology and tragedy, which is what the LA Times called it. Tragedy because you're watching a tragedy unfold in real time and technology because we suddenly had this technology, this microwave that allowed us to do this. And it hooked people. They got reality TV as news. And you could draw, I think, arguably a very straight line from that to the way that we cover politics and then at the extreme to the way that we covered Donald Trump. And, you know, you mentioned like the insurrection, like we were watching that live and like couldn't look away and also yeah. couldn't do anything about it, which is such a strange feeling. And you were there. It is. It was very strange. I mean, I think the insurrection is one of the examples of how this technology can be used for good because we were all watching it live. There was no spinning it. You know, there was no shading it or saying, oh, you're not really seeing what you're seeing. All of the networks carried it at the same time, including Fox News. So all of Fox News's viewers saw all of what MSNBC viewers were seeing and all of what ABC News viewers were seeing and CBS. Everybody saw the same exact thing. There was no lying about it. It was all there in front of you happening in real time. And so I think that's a really good example of this technology working for the better because you can't lie. What the lies about it didn't come till later, but it's hard to rewrite what you've seen with your own eyes. You might be able to do it for a time, but with these hearings, as we're seeing, I think there's been a break in some of that fever where people are now acknowledging that what happened did happen and that Donald Trump has some responsibility for it, at least some. But with the rallies, I think that that's a prime example of how that technology can be used for bad, because it wasn't good that we aired those live in full night after night after night after night. It just, it wasn't, I mean, I think we were addicted to this, what was going to happen next? What was he going to say next? But I, I think it was corrosive and we didn't realize it until later. And so what was it like for you as a journalist to sort of become part of the story during that campaign? It was really uncomfortable because I'm not supposed to be a part of the story. It was never, it's never about me. It's about what you're covering. And, I, and there was one moment in particular, a rally in, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. I was in the belly of a an old warship and Donald Trump was holding a rally. It was the day that he announced the Muslim ban and the Republicans were like, this, this is not going to stand. He's tanked himself. But everybody in the crowd outside that I asked about it, was supportive of it. And they were angry, like, keep him out of here. He said some questionable stuff. And so the the room was already electric. It already felt like it was on the verge of exploding. And when he came in, 
he just riled them up even more. And he was angry at me about some coverage that I did a couple nights earlier about him walking off stage. And he decided to use this moment after he's announced the Muslim ban as this crowd is seething with anger. And he points me out and he calls me little Katie and he yells at me from the stage. And she's back there, look at her. And the whole room looks at me. And I remember in the moment, I just like smile and wave, smile and wave. Like if they, if you, if they see you scared, it will be worse. So smile and wave. And then when I got on TV a few minutes later, Chris Matthews asked me about it. And I ignored the question because I wasn't comfortable talking about myself. I wasn't going to talk about myself. It's not about me. It's not about that moment, even though that moment was exploding because it was, you know, it was what everybody in the country was watching. And I found myself at that point going forward, confronted with the fact that there were people out there that would make me a part of the story because Donald Trump was making me a part of the story. And how do I, how do I maintain my journalistic distance amidst that? And it was, it was a challenge. You wrote a book about that campaign, Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History. This book sort of reconciles with a different portion of your life and primarily your relationship with your father. And you sort of draw those parallels sort of between the way you've dealt with your father and the way you dealt with Trump. Could you sort of explain that to our listeners? So interestingly, one of the big questions I get on the campaign was, why did you keep going? Why didn't you quit? Like, why did you keep dealing with the attacks? And one of the answers was, of course, I wasn't going to quit. I was a journalist. It was the biggest story that was happening on the planet. And two was because Donald Trump as a persona was very familiar to me. And this is the stuff that I didn't say in public at the time, but my mom would text me all the time or friends, family friends, and they would say, God, he sounds so much like your father. No wonder, like he doesn't know who he's going up against because you understand that personality. Like he does, he's underestimated you. And it wasn't that my dad had the same views as Donald Trump. My dad does not. But the personality type where they're in one moment charming you and then the next moment attacking you was kind of the personality that my dad had, which made it so familiar. And which what made my childhood so hard to contend with and what made this book on the one end very fascinating, but on the other end really difficult to confront because... How do you go back and look at a past that you have so many fond memories of? I mean, I was just thinking this morning about my dad teaching me how to use a darkroom. I mean, I'm reading a John le Carre book and they're using a darkroom. I mean, it's a spy novel. And I remembered very fondly that my dad taught me how to take pictures. And it's just one of my happiest and most cherished memories. And how do I hold that and remember that and love it so much? but then also hold all of the harm and the, the fear that my dad also created in my childhood. How do you do both? And in, in the book, I, I, try to, I try to figure it out. Like, do I love my childhood? Do I hate my childhood? Do I love my father? Do I hate my father? Does my father mean everything? Does my father mean nothing? And I think the answer is he means everything and he means nothing all at the same time. Just as a caveat, I say he because I'm talking about the past. My dad in 2013, which I'm sure you're going to ask about, transitioned uh, and is now a woman. So my dad is now a she. And so when I talk about my, my dad in the present, I use she to be obviously respectful and supportive of that decision. But our relationship is, is rocky and, and we really haven't spoken much or had much of a relationship now in 15 years. It almost seems like you found a way to not become the story, but contextualize. I mean, I, I really appreciate how open you've been about giving birth and having children and going back to work. Like that to me 
reading that and, and you've written about that elsewhere. I mean, it's was really, really meaningful. Is it weird to have people know so much about you now when they see you on TV every day? I don't know. It's such a hard question. I think that I'm still able to compartmentalize it. You know, I don't know. What do you know about me? You know nothing about me or you know everything about me. Either way, it's fine. I don't know. I think the best way to say it is I've never been the kind of person that would want to not tell you everything. I like people to know everything. This was the one thing that I didn't really want people to know because I didn't want to talk about the violence and I didn't want to talk about the uglier stuff that I went through. I wanted to talk about the fun, crazy stories. I didn't want to reckon with that. I also didn't want to reckon with like what my parents did and what it turned out to be for, for me as a journalist now, the, the legacy of their careers. But when I realized that if I'm not honest with you about who I am, how can I expect you to trust me? And so I decided to, to go to the place I didn't want to go to and to reveal it all. And is it weird that people know everything? I guess it sort of is. But what's the tagline for NBC? The more you know, the more you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fascinating. I know. I, I really appreciate it. Um, as a Jewish podcaster, my eyes perk up when I see certain things. And I have to say, like, I was surprised at the moment in this book where you reveal that you have stepchildren living in Israel. I do. They're super cool kids. They moved there when they were pretty young. Um, I met Tony, my husband, like a week before he was dropping them off to live in Israel with their mother because that's where she wanted to be. So they decided to make sort of a, a halfsies situation work where they were in Israel half the time and, and in America half the time. And I had been to Israel once for work. I thought it was a fascinating place and never expected that I would be going back once or twice a year, every year for the rest of my life. But that's <laughs> me now. We just got back a couple of weeks ago. Um, my son was bar mitzvahed and I got to pass the Torah to him, which felt very special. Wait, that's amazing. Yeah, it was really, it was amazing. What was so beautiful about it was, you know, I grew up in LA with these big kind of gaudy ceremonies, as I, as I said a moment yes. ago, where everybody got spray painted <laughs> shirts. And, and this was just a really nice, intimate ceremony in a small shul in Tel Aviv. It was probably 30 people total. And it was lovely. And it was just, it felt very meaningful and inclusive, which I loved. And was everyone wearing shorts? <laughs> yes. Why Half is it so casual there? Shorts. I don't know. It's like Miami meets Los Angeles meets Tel Aviv almost has the, the, the feeling of Romeo and Juliet, the, the Boz Lerman version. <laughs> it's kind of what it feels like. That's actually incredible. I love that. This was really, really fun. Thank you for being a guest on Unorthodox. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for making me um, the Jew in this episode. It's, it's, You're it's hanging Jewish on by a thread. Hanging of the on week. by a thread. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. The new book is Rough Draft. I think all of our listeners should listen to it because they're already, you know, they're into the into the audio. I do. I do read it. And my dulcet tones will bring it to you. It's great. Katie Turner, thank you so much. It was so great chatting with you. Stephanie, thank you so much. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture, 
As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox, I would like to have the honor of reading two quick notes that we got in honor of producer Quinn Waller and a recent installment of her ongoing series, Cook Like a Jew. May I? Do I have your dispensation, Leal and Stephanie, to honor Quinn with these letters? Rolf away. Dear Unorthodox, I'm writing because of how much Quinn Waller's challah installment of Cook Like a Jew resonated with me. I'm a ripe 24 years of age and completed my conversion just this month. Also not for marriage and not too religious. Basically, everything you, Quinn, have been grappling with, I have too. You said something about how you don't have a Jewish mother-in-law to teach you to cook Jewish and that you have no visceral reaction to the smell of challah baking in the oven, no childhood memories tied to that wonderful warm aroma. It feels a bit like keeping an empty shelf, sighing at all the family heirlooms that weren't for us to have in this life. It's heart-wrenching and lonely. It's so hard, Quinn, trying to find your own community as a Jew by choice, but I'm feeling at home with the community I found where I am, and I hope you're having better luck in New York. And Quinn, I hope you finally talked to the girl in your class. She probably thinks about talking to you too. I know I would. You seem like a real friendship catch. Next time my challah is in the oven, I'm going to take a deep breath and let the awe and comfort of having challah in my oven soak in. And a big, big thanks to the entire Unorthodox team. Shalom, Emily. Oh, Emily, if, if it's of any comfort to you, uh, Mark also has a- Has a no memories. Where all these memories used to be. I, I wasn't going to say grow up. I didn't grow up with challah cooking in the house and the baking. I think it's true. Like, I, I think that there's an interesting way in which I think a lot of born Jews, whatever we're calling ourselves, um, deal with this also. Like, I don't do this. I didn't do that. Should I to do this? To be fair, I had the warm aroma of pepperoni covered Domino's pizza. <laughs> That's right. Many Extra Friday cheesy. nights. 
<laughs> Followed often by trips to showcase cinemas on Riverdale Road to see the latest Cineplex feature, where I might also acquire popcorn lightly buttered. So it's not that there weren't tastes and aromas from my childhood, but from a Hamish Shabbos in Springfield, Mass. <laughs> and then we also get this one. Hi, Unorthodox. Longtime listener, first time emailer. I'm a recent convert in my early 30s who did not convert for marriage. And I'd love to compare notes with Quinn per her comments on this week's episode. I bring a homemade challah to my shul, S-A-J, every week so she can catch me at morning services or just shoot me an email. I've really appreciated her perspective whenever it is shared on the podcast. Thank you for all you do. Unorthodox has been a great companion throughout my conversion journey. Shabbat Shalom. It's a Friday morning as I write this. Michelle. I basically think all these really nice listeners just want some challah. It's a very elaborate plot. To <laughs> Everyone be like, wants to be friends with Quinn. I'm hungry. So she can bake them. Quinn, you happen to be here getting such nice emails. Yes, I am here. And I do have to say that I saw those emails in the mailbox this morning and then I promptly screenshotted them and sent them to my parents. Oh, I feel a lot of times like the stories that I do are kind of corny and like I'm just doing all of these stories about like love and belonging and community. Oh, all those boring and dumb things like belonging and having people love you. Religion. Going to a house of worship in the year 2022. But it's so, like, I, it's so nice. I cannot tell you how nice it is to get these emails. It really is corny, but it's great. I embrace the corn. As a Midwestern gal, send all the corn. Quinn, as they said in uh, my childhood synagogue after we fellowshipped, uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Liel. And I appreciate you, Emily and Michelle. Thank you. Stephanie, would you read the next letter? Yes, of course. Dear Unorthodox, although I had never heard of the actor Eric Leiden, I have heard of and had Awful Awfuls back in 1967 when camp counselors, also in the Berkshires, not Camp Greylock, brought them to us on their days off. This is well before Eric Leiden was born, so I chuckled when he identified them. Right after this, the name was changed to Fribbles. Also, I enjoyed hearing about Mark's daughter's bat mitzvah. I just wish there was a little less snark coming through in every episode I've listened to so far. I just think we need less snark all around, and I don't know why you need a designation of Jew of the Week and Gentile of the Week. But I will keep listening for now to glean some interesting information like the history of awful awfuls. Yours, Fran Glucroft. So first of all, Fran Glucroft, your name is unimprovable. It really is. <laughs> Second of all, here's the truth about why we have Jews of the Week and Gentiles of the Week. It's, it's all part of our desperate effort to actually identify and talk to Gentiles. If you've listened to the show for long, you know that about three quarters of our designated Gentiles of the Week have turned out to be, you know, descendants of rabbis, the gabai at their shul. They've all somehow turned out Jewish. We're just very curious about Gentiles. We hear there are quite a few of them in the world. We don't know who they are or what they want. So we're just trying to learn here. That, by the way, is the title of uh, my upcoming book, Gentiles. Who are they and what do they want? <laughs> uh, Liel, while we have you, could you read the next letter also about uh, the ice cream history of Western Massachusetts? So this is opening up a controversy. Mark mm -hmm. says this angry email. An awful, awful is from Newport Creamery, not Friendly's WTF. Mazel Tov and Claire's Bat Mitzvah. Best, Scott Gladstone, Brandeis 90. So this is great. First of all, I love it when, when our correspondents give us their college and year for no apparent reason. No, well, he's <laughs> saying he listened to Gay Crashers and he wants to know why you didn't mention Brandeis. So Scott Gladstone, which by the way, there's the most Goyesha name ever. He writes in to correct me. Uh, that's a strong move. When you write in to correct 
a host who is an internationally recognized Jewish expert. Uncorrectable. Yeah, I mean, to tell me an awful, awful is from Newport Creamery, not friendlies. As it happens, Scott Gladstone, for all of your intelligence and research skills that you gleaned being a member of the Brandeis class of 1990, I actually did some research on this. I consulted my friend, Herr Dr. Professor Google, and he told me, that The Awful Awful was produced by Bonds in New Jersey, but it was franchised out to two northern restaurant chains. Friendly's, out of Massachusetts, also had the rights to sell The Awful Awful using The Awful Awful mix produced by Bonds in New Jersey, as did Newport Creamery in Rhode Island. So the truth is, Newport Creamery and Friendly's were both uh, Johnny-come-latelys. They both had to acquire the rights from Bonds. And when somehow the right to keep using the awful, awful name or special sauce got taken away, Friendly's rebranded theirs the Fribble. But the Newport Creamery people were no more the leaders in awful awfulness than the Friendly's people were. But I thank you for forcing me to clarify this. And um, I hope to see you at our next Brandeis reunion. Would you read the next letter? In regards to Mark's story of rolling through a stop sign and his brief chat with an officer that resulted in merely a warning. I was speeding home on an unlit two-lane road late one evening. I pull over when I see flashing blue lights in my rearview mirror. The officer approaches my window and asks if I know how fast I was going. He looks young enough to be my son. No, officer, please tell me, I say. He tells me, and the next thing out of my mouth without thinking still astounds me as much as it must have surprised him. Oh, officer, that is way too fast for this road. Thank you so much for pulling me over. He just gave me a warning. Thank you for an often thought-provoking podcast. Diana Lieb, Asheville, North Carolina. (laughs) That's precious. We are often thought-provoking. I want to use that as like a rating. Now, we are often thought-provoking, but also, if you listen to this next voicemail, we apparently are the receptacle, the all-purpose receptacle of Jews' complaints. Have a listen. Hello, this is Sarah Leah Zimmerman. I live in Sacramento and Chicago. I'm calling with a fetch about Steven Spielberg's new movie, The Fablement. I don't understand why they couldn't cast his family with Jewish actors. It's crazy making. And I think because everyone loves Steven Spielberg, no one wants to say anything. Anyway, love the podcast. You guys are amazing. Thank you. So that's great. So basically, we're just we're just the kvetch line now. Is that what it like? If if Jews anywhere have a complaint, they just call nine one four five seven zero four eight six nine and just just yell at us. We are the Jewish butterball turkey hotline. That, by the way, is an <laughs> app that could make us a million dollars. Yes, calling fetch. <laughs> it's free. They're getting the milk without even buying the cow. We just They're, gave them a free line to call and, and yell and at it's us. Parav. All right, all right. We're rounding the corner of the mailbox. Dear unorthodox. Thank you so much for visiting us in tidy Delaware. I drove up from Sussex County, a.k.a. Lower Slower or Below the Canal. And I was tickled to discover that all three of you are as brilliant and charming in four dimensions as you are in the ether. I get a little <laughs> anxious in windowless rooms, but as soon as I heard your voices, I felt I was among friends. Love the show. Long may you wave. Come back anytime. Lynn King. Lynn literally see you like two weeks from now at the JCC. That's all I have to say. Oh my God. Now, we had three people write in chastising Liel for punning on the fast food sign that should be above the gates of Auschwitz. Not Arbite mocked fry, but Arby's mocked fry. And three different people wrote in and said, Liel, how could you not take the ripe for the plucking I pun? I did. I said Arby's mocked fries. You did. Yes. I, so that's interesting. Several people, both Devora and Dove and Ava, all wrote in to say, how come you didn't go for, for Arby's mock For fries? shame, friends. Do you really think I would miss such an opportunity? 
I spend 93% of my time thinking up fast food and Holocaust-related puns. Do you really think I didn't go there in my mind? Fair enough. And finally, we leave you with this week's finest mailbox offering, also on the topic of Western Massachusetts. Please listen. Hey, this is Joe. Wanted to give a big shout-out for this week's episode on building bridges with uh, Eric Layden in particular. Uh, listening on the train, going down to work like I usually do on Thursday morning. And his interview just kept getting better and better, as Stephanie had remarked. And then he mentioned going to summer camp in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And although I am 60, and he, I believe, said he's 44, so I was there years before him, I went to a rival camp called Winnedu, which was on Lake Anoda, and we used to be big rivals with Camp Greylock where he went. And I was just smiling ear to ear. Uh, and thought it was fantastic. You guys are great. We look forward to you coming back to our area soon um, and just keep doing all the diverse things and arguing the way you do and having different opinions because it's uh, it's so valuable. So uh, it was a great interview. Thanks a lot. And uh, congratulations and mazel tov to the new bat mitzvah and Mark's family. Friends, we love nothing more than getting your mail and voicemails. Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us at 914 570 Four eight six nine. Are the boys cuter at Winnedoo or Greylock? Weigh in. Douglas Century is a writer and tablet contributor who joins us to talk about tough Jews, specifically the ones in his recent book, The Last Boss of Brighton, Boris Biba Neifeld, and the rise of the Russian mob in America. Tablet contributing editor, Douglas Sentry, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. <laughs> Jew of the Week? God, it's a huge honor. Thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm glad you recognize what a huge honor it is. Before we talk about your extraordinary journalism and your work on organized crime, on Jewish mobsters, on narco-trafficking, I have to ask, Douglas Sentry, real name, pen name, fake name? Oh my God, it's a real name. Going back to Warsaw, uh, 1790s, we have Simcha Century and then Baruch Century, but it was pronounced Centuria. It was spelled Century, might come from the Roman legions, but no, it's real name, came through Ellis Island, never changed. So your book is The Last Boss of Brighton, Boris Biba Neifeld and the Rise of the Russian Mob in America. For listeners who aren't familiar, can you explain who Boris Neifeld is and his role in the Russian mob? So Boris Neifeld, he was a notorious and still is feared gangster in Brighton Beach, but he came from really humble origins. He was born in a small Jewish family from Gomel, which is a small place in now Belarus, but it was the Belarusian Republic. A Jewish home, his mother abandoned him at age three because his father was in the gulag for black marketeering. His baba raised him because the mother just couldn't wait around and she went and married another man. So he quickly got into crime. Uh, in, in the USSR, it was called hooligans, like hooligans. Vladimir Putin was one as well. These were street gangs, no guns, but they used to have knife fights. Quickly, he got into the black market uh, after doing three years in a zone, which is a work camp. He came out. You couldn't get a good job once you had a prison record. He used to go to Siberia and do these rackets, which are called dead souls. And he was making hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, well, in, in rubles, and flashing it, like wearing a fancy furs. He had a Mogandovid made up, which you couldn't buy. You know, that was known. Guys were ripping off the state, but the crime was theft from the state in an excessive amount, 10,000 rubles. And he was dealing like hundreds of thousands of rubles. 
was a firing squad. So under the threat of the firing squad, he was constantly being shaken down by the cops. You would have to give them cognac and chocolate. Uh, As soon as, I think by 79, they got their application approved. Baba Riva had relatives in, uh, in Israel. So they did have a connection. And the whole family got out. And he always said, I just narrowly escaped getting the death penalty. Some of his friends who were in the crime world were shot by the firing squads. Got out, came to America. He quickly rose up. At that time, the established boss was a Jewish guy named Yivse Agron. Amazing, interesting figure. He was the Leningrad University graduate, but he was the boss in Brighton Beach. Boris became his protector, sort of his uh, muscle. Yivse was murdered in 1985 in Ocean Parkway, unsolved to this day. And Boris kind of stepped up then. And within a few years, I don't know how he went from extreme poverty to... It's really rags to, rags to riches in the worst sense of the word. One of the biggest heroin traffickers in the history of the United States. DEA busted him in 94. Money laundering. God, he has four American convictions. He was convicted even in old age at age 67 for a crazy murder for hire. A Jewish guy <laughs> wouldn't divorce his wife. And the dad comes to Boris Potek and says, I want this you to- This is a Sopranos plotline, isn't it? It's all this real. Is like the first episode. You can see a picture, is, yes. picture of Boris with all his tattoos yes. in. This is like in 2018. It says "Scary Geezer Hitman." So Boris comes out of prison. He has no money. This guy Potik comes to him and says, uh, "I want you to whack my son-in-law. Uh, he won't give my daughter a divorce. He's abusive and all that." And the guy was worth. He's a shipping magnet. I mean, I'm not making this up. It's all in the book. So the guy, um, he clawed his way to the top of the rackets and uh, made a vast fortune and now has none of it because, you know, one thing people don't realize, gangsters never save their money because once the feds get you, you got to prove that you have some kind of W-2. So you're, you're Bentley, you had a Bentley, you had a Ferrari, your villa, everything, gone. So now he's a pensioner. <laughs> I am truly intrigued by the Russian mob in America because we have these myths in the United States anyway, that in the 20s and 30s, you know, when not every Jewish boy could get into medical school or dentistry or accounting school or whatever, a few of them, like they had to go and become mobsters. They had no other choice. But of course, according to our myths, that's a thing of the past. And then quietly, quietly we whisper, except now these Russians, these Russian Jews are real street Jews. Okay. So first of all, would you explain for me the Russian mob? And and how is it like the Italian mob where there's kind of this cultural defense of it from within the community as a, as a noble profession or people who are defending their own, right? It's like Meadow Soprano said, you know, there weren't opportunities in the Levant, so they had to go into, you know, being mobsters. Is there this kind of intracultural defense in the Russian community? Do they stick up for their mobsters in the way that, at least according to stereotype, Italians stick up for their mobsters? Or... Or do they have a sense of shame? Tell me, what's what's the whispers in Brighton Beach and Coney Island and places like that? Okay, well, it wasn't a sense of shame because in the Soviet times, you got a picture when these guys were shaped, Boris and guys like that, a lot of them got university educations. So this made for a very dangerous combination. You go to a gulag type work camp, which Boris did for three years. You've got a university education. Come to America so you're a university-educated, fresh-off-the-boat, greenhorn killer. Like, these guys are very dangerous. But... As the Soviet Union collapsed in the Brezhnev era, everybody was stealing from the state. Everybody was hustling. The highest level of it went up to the Bradachiks. Like there's a joke uh, from the Soviet times. You're not stealing from your job. What's wrong with you? So (laughs) when this book started, it came to me actually as a pitch like this is once upon a time in America, but it's in the 80s. What happened is you're absolutely right. Jews never had a second generation of, of gangsters. Meyer Lansky sends his son to West Point. 
Lepke Bookhalter, I write about this at the end of the book, only mob gods to go to the electric chair. Louis Lepke Bookhalter, head of Murder Incorporated, actually set up all the rackets in the garment center. His brother was a dentist. His other brother, <laughs> he had another brother who was a famous rabbi. So Jews tended to be, the Jewish gangsters tended to be the one black sheep kid in his family. And that's also true of Boris. These guys came over, if you recall, in the 70s, the Soviets started to let Jews out as part of family reunification. There's some evidence now that the KGB intentionally let out those Jews who had criminal records. So you got a cohort. Brighton Beach, I think by the, let's say 1980, 85, was about 40,000 strong of Russian speakers, maybe 500 what they call professional criminals. So it's not a huge percentage of that very lovely community where you can still go to crazy supper clubs and and see the floor shows that are- Right, but it's not nothing. It's not nothing. And they, they really had a crazy murder wave in the 80s and 90s. And the American cops did not know, the FBI, DEA, NYPD, no American cops knew how to deal with these guys. Because first of all, as some NYPD detective told me, well, the Russians are different from the Italians. They'll kill your whole family. If somebody talks, they'll kill your whole family. They'll kill your wife. Yeah, they were known as being really, really ruthless. And the other thing that really gave them a lot of power, like Boris did three years in a zona, which is a work zone. And he said, they barely gave us enough calories to eat. We were worried about freezing to death. They would march five kilometers and 40 below to, to work on it. He said, I went to MCC and these American, it's like, he said, it's hell versus paradise. Like we would worry about how many calories are in this you know, how many grams of sugar are we getting? And in American prison, it was who controls the remote control to the color TV? Oh, wait, we're going to play bocce ball or we're going to have yoga class. <laughs> uh, it's a joke, but it's not untrue that they're not afraid of American prison. They actually didn't care. So that gave them a lot. I always tell this about crime interviews. The guy who has the most power is the guy who is not afraid of prison and has nothing to lose. So Comparing them to the Italian mob is a, diff is a difficult thing because they are like the Italian mob was in the time of Lucky Luciano in the early days. The Italian mob now, the Russians think they're soft. They really do. Hey, they got kids in college. They Look at Tony Soprano. He had money launderers. And if everybody remembers the, uh, the Pine Barrens episode, they were terrified of this Russian guy. He was special forces. That's not untrue. They are not afraid of the Ru Italian mob at all. They will go to war with them. They, they tended to- Who are they afraid of? Who, who's like, who, who are who the Russian mobsters think like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, who do they think like, oh, shit, they've called in the the Hungarians, the the Yakuza. Like, who are they scared of? Well, right now, I mean, you don't want to piss off Putin, honestly. Like, it goes up to the top. Uh, but people are always asking me, is it like the Italian mob? You know, people watch Michael Francesi and Michael Francesi was very nice to give me a blur because he made hundreds of millions of dollars working with Russian Jews, this infamous gasoline. So to be clear, are those Russian mobsters, are they all Jews? The ones I'm writing about, yeah. A couple came over later who were not. But, I mean, the only Russians who were getting out in the 70s and 80s, it was a policy of family reunification. You had to have a family member in Israel. <laughs> Sometimes it was fictitious letters. Okay, so that you'd get the whole family out, usually get to Vienna, then they'd get to Rome, and they would start, oh, you could change your, your application to the U.S., Canada, Australia. Some did go to Israel. Yeah, so the first wave, yeah, they were all Jews. Or, you know, the thing is, did they really understand their Jewishness? Because it was kind of prohibited in the Soviet times. So a lot of them didn't have much identity as far as- And are they bringing their kids into the business, or are they like the Jews of 75, 100 years ago, where the kids are going to be orthodontists? Um, a couple of the kids tried to, like, step up, but they're, they're soft. Because- in the case of a guy like Boris, he made enough money to have a house on Staten Island. People don't know that's mob central. He was like, he lived surrounded by all the Italian gangsters. So his, 
his children are growing up in affluence. So it's just the, it's not more complicated than the level of hunger. You know, Boris to this day can't speak English properly or good English. And you can live in Brighton Beach to this day, older people not speaking a word of English. You can do your shopping, you read your news, you can listen to the radio. And there's a joke, a young Jewish kid says to his Zeta, Zeta, why don't, when are you going to learn English? He goes, in Brighton Beach, who would understand me? Like it's all Russians. So it's not that they didn't have the opportunities. Boris tried to drive a taxi. He got someone to take the test for him because it's a hilarious scene. He's driving a cab like all these Russians did. He couldn't read English. He'd get these airport jobs. He was just following the little sign that looks like an airport. He took one guy was asking him to go to the Bronx and he ends up taking him to Long Island and the guy's screaming at him. So he ended up lasting driving a taxi for like five days. And then they got into crime because either you went to school and tried to better yourself and learn how to fit into American society. But if you didn't have the patience to do that, and a lot of criminal minded people, they're very brilliant, but they're extremely impulsive. They don't have the delayed gratification, <laughs> the sense of waiting five years to make it. And, um, Boris said one thing in the book that was crazy. The, the Jewish community of Albany welcomed them with open arms. And for about three months, they had free food. They had the JCC to go swimming. And they joked, you know, free food. We don't have to work. This is the communism we were always promised, right? But, but after three months, they said, Boris, you got to go to work. And the job they gave him was going to work at midnight at a doctor's office and sweeping up and cleaning the toilets. And this guy had been making the equivalent <laughs> of hundreds of thousands of dollars illegally in the black market. And he said, for a guy like me cleaning a toilet, I don't think so. So he went to Brighton Beach, got a 38 caliber and went to work during other kinds of jobs, you know? So that's the story of a lot of these guys. It's the impatience. I need it now. I want to make money now, the American way. That's why I got into podcasting. I always feel like, you know, I, I look, I've interviewed neo-Nazis and white nationalists and I, I sit with them, I break bread and, and I try to see them as human. I try to, I try to remember everyone was somebody's baby yep. once being cradled in their mother's arms. Everyone had potential, right? But, you know, with certain kinds of stories, I do end up with a revulsion. And yet people who write about the mob often end up with a grudging admiration. Where do you fall on that? Well, I try very hard in this book to show Boris for what he is, which is clearly sociopathic personality. I mean, somebody read my book and said, this should be in, in psychology courses. I don't have an admiration for the criminal behavior, which was basically extorting, collecting from other Jews, hurting other Jews. But there were a few scenes in the book, anti-Semitism was rampant. It was very open in his era. And he's a tough guy. He's a really, he's one of the scariest guys I've known. He had a crew and he goes and gets a, a mug and dog made up when you couldn't get them, you couldn't buy them. So he goes to a jeweler and he has it made up because you couldn't purchase one. And he said, and I wore it over my turtleneck. I mean, that was the thing to say. And I, I showed it to a few Russians. There's a photo in the book and they said, yeah, that took some balls to do that back then. But he has a great line. There was a scene in the book where I really did have some admiration. The proper word for a Jew in, in Russian is Ivre. And the slur is Jid, the Polish word. And there's a, there's a phrase, Jidovskaya Morda, you have a kike's mug. It's horrible. And he said, you know, if anybody said that to one of my friends, I would go beat him straight away. Like I, any, if you he heard any anti-Semitism, I would fight. So in that context, you have to kind of go, oh, I like those kind of guys that stand up for their friends. And it, But, you know, at the end of the book, I am very, very conflicted about, like he says he had no options, right, right. but I'll give you a little plot spoiler. He has a brother who's 11 months his senior who came to America Worked an honest job, never convicted of any crime, never even associated, and is in happy retirement on Staten Island. And I say, you guys have the same DNA. You had the same experiences almost. I mean, 
why could your brother go the path of hard work, paying his taxes, do, and you needed it now? And I think I have a friend that read the book said, "Oh God, there's got to be a genetic component." You know, there's a gene almost for some of these guys because they're just so easy to anger, impulsive, narcissistic. And anyway, nature versus nurture. I don't come down on the side of admiration. I come down on the side of fascination. I love that you basically said to him, why can't you be more like your brother? (laughs) I did. 100%. And so is there a Russian mob today? Is it still Jewish? Is it the same like, what are we looking at and how scary is it? We're looking at it's not big in Brighton Beach anymore, because guess what? A lot of those guys, as soon as communism fell, they saw the opportunities to go back. The Russian mob now is essentially the government. I mean, a lot of the guys, I don't want to give away too much, but Putin has a lot of guys in his inner circle who are Jewish oligarchs, gangster oligarchs. There was an expose of probably the biggest theft in history, they call it. Putin made a $1.4 billion palace on the Black Sea and Navalny exposed it, you know, his big critic. Well, it's the biggest residence in the history of the world. It has its own helipad and everything. Well, there's two Jewish brothers. They're oligarchs, but I call them oligarch gangsters. Arkady Rottenberg and Boris Rottenberg. They were judo buddies of Putin as kids. Are they Arkady Rottenberg after the hue and cry comes and says, that palace is mine. I said, well, that's convenient. Now, one thing about Putin, he has a lot of Jewish oligarch friends. He's not an anti-Semite. He's a crooked guy, and he's obviously doing something war crimes right now. But many of those oligarch Jewish guys, again, this is a Shanda for the Goyim. I I hate to say some of this stuff out that neo-Nazis will jump on. But many of those oligarchs are Jewish. And a lot of that criminal element that prospered in America went back legitimized in the former USSR. Wow. You know what they say, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> I mean, like, if you can make it in New York, why not go take Moscow and Kiev, right? I would argue that the crime that we saw as a kind of subculture in America and Russia is now normalized, and it is the government of Russia. Russia is now a kleptocracy. It is now a functionally criminal state in many ways. There's this phrase, Shonda for the Goyam, right? Like, yeah. Jews behaving badly is something that, like, really icks a lot of us out. Um What do we do with this, with this very real history of Jewish mobsters, Jewish gangsters, bad Jews, basically? How do you sort of square that away with this idea that, like, we want to be good people? Well, I think we accept that we have good and bad. And I mean, what are we going to, I mean, do we ignore the Bernie Madoffs of the world and the Epstein? Jeffrey Epstein, yeah. I mean, is that not a Shonda for the Goyim? I mean, you know, we see those and we just, I don't want to hear this. But what do we do with it? We accept that we're, the Italian culture is not mafia. That's a small subset. The Jewish culture, I did that with your co-producer, Leal. I did a series for Tablet about the Israeli mob. They were whacking each other left. There's Mizrahi families, they tend to be. It's a reality for us. We have doctors, lawyers, Nobel Prize winners. We have gangsters. We have horrible people like Epstein. Why are Jews different from any other culture that we we shouldn't? Uh, did the black community say, oh, no, Bill Cosby, we can't accept that. He He was both things. He was America's dad, and then he turned out to be a creep. Human beings are not simple. (laughs) Boris is capable of good things, even though I think he's a narcissistic, sociopathic person. And for me, the idea that we have a Shonda for the Goyim, I get it. We don't want to fuel into negative stereotypes. But I would rather, in a sense, this is going to sound horrible. I'd rather hear about a Jewish gangster than a Bernie Madoff. Because Bernie Madoff, to me, is like, that's the worst thing I think of a Jew. Oh, he's just a Ghanif. He just took everybody's money in the Ponzi scheme. When I hear about these Jews doing, okay, you got to pay us protection or else shaking down. I mean, that's what the Sicilians did. That's what the Irish did. And it just shows that we're an ethnic group like any other. I will say what's really amazing for me 
about Jewish organized crime is that I can't find an example of somebody who wanted his son to go into it. The Italians, and I'm not to insult them, but Michael Francesi had a, his dad was Sonny Francesi. There's John Gotti had his son, John Jr., who was never cut out to be a mobster. The Italians didn't mind making their sons criminals. Jews never wanted that for them. They never did. They always wanted their kids to get out. I'm doing this because I had to. Don't be like me. <laughs> I mean, no, I hate to say it. I can't think of a Jewish organized crime figure whose son followed him into the family business. You know, it really wasn't true. So in that level, but the Shanda for the Goyim, I think, is something we have to accept. When I write bad things about Jewish organized crime, and I'm, I'm sure it's two of my friend Rich Cohen, it gets picked up by neo-Nazi websites. And see, even the Jews admit they're the best criminals, you know? And I just think it makes us an interesting, diverse community that we're not all yeshiva bochers, we're not all nebishes, we're not all bookish. Same way, I wrote a book about Barney Ross, a Jewish boxer. Well, people joke and say, oh, you mean there's Jewish boxers, matzah ball, levine? No, a third of the boxers in the 1920s and 30s were Jews. And some of the best boxers, Benny Leonard is still considered one of the greatest lightweights, probably the greatest lightweight of all time next to Roberto Duran. And so why are we not capable of being starkers, Yiddish for, you know, as well as Nobel Prize laureates? We're all, we're all things. I mean, we can do it all. Doesn't that make Jewish people even more interesting? To me? I love that. Making Jewish people more interesting. This book certainly does. The Last Boss of Brighton, Boris Biba Neifeld and the Rise of the Russian Mob in America. Douglas Century, thank you for being our Tough Jew of the Week. <laughs> tough Jew of the Week. Mazel tovs. I would like to offer a mazel tov that, that I think Liel and Stephanie will buy into as well. I'll give the mazel tov. You can tell me if I may offer it on your behalf. And it is to our colleague, Tanya Singer, whose title I still don't know. Field commander. Somehow, our, she's basically coming in to make us be our best selves. And we've had a few meetings lately where she has simply made everyone smarter, gotten us to resolutions faster, made us want to fellowship with each other even more. She's our Jew of the week, but if she weren't Jewish, she'd be our Gentile every week. And so just a, a huge, a huge shout out, a mazel tov to Tanya Singer. Leon, Stephanie, will you join me in that one? Yes, Hallelujah. And, and in, in her honor, we are now going to play the song that will forever after be known as Tanya's theme song. She's also the woman who, if you want to book us for a live show, you email her at tsinger at tabletmag.com and you know, somehow it just happens. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Sarah Fredman, Ada Jerome Ruskin, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. Get our brand new swag. I actually, I, I wear it often now. It's such good looking swag at tabletstudios.com. Episode artist by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem. Mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Adam Baldachin. He's at Sherry Tikva in Scarsdale, New York, and he was nominated by our own Tanya Singer. We come to you from Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.